Welcome back to the Scholar's Attic. Today we are going to talk about Dixie Rising, the lead up to and early days of the American Civil War. And just as a side note, I think I have finally figured out the Do Not Disturb settings on my laptop, so I should not get any more of those annoying little dings and blips throughout the podcast. So hopefully, fingers crossed. So a word about this podcast before I get started. Um, It is during this part of our discussion about the American Civil War that we start talking about the battles. And I do not have a military mind. Now, for this podcast, I'm relying not only on the Giles Kirk curriculum as the backbone of the, the, the lectures and the information that I give in this class, but I am also relying heavily on the notes and PowerPoints provided to me by Allison Earle, the headmaster of our school. Her Happy Space is talking about the American Civil War. So the last couple times that I've taught American history at Lighthouse, she is the one who did most of the teaching on this subject. The first time American history rolled around, I got this to this subject and I just I just couldn't do it. I spent so many years teaching in public schools and having to interpret into sign language, different classes, which included a lot of history classes, and just the way that the Civil War was presented, at least in the classes where I had to do the interpreting, I it was very heavy-handed. It only gave one side to the story, and I, I was just sick of it. It, it just, I, I just did not have the emotional bandwidth to try and teach that slice of American history. So the last couple of times through, Allison Earle taught that class. Fortunately, and blessedly, she is such a sweetheart, she sent me copies of all of her PowerPoints and notes last time. And those are largely the, that's largely what I am pulling from here as I talk my way through today's lesson. In conjunction with that, Alex Drom, who graduated from Lighthouse a couple years ago, he also has a real love for Civil War, not just trivia, but just the whole war itself and really exploring the battles and the generals and uh, all of that sort of thing. So one of the things that I am hoping to have for you on Edmodo later this week it should be up already by the time this airs, by the time this podcast is posted. Uh, he should have a PowerPoint completed with voiceover that will be available on Edmodo where you can look at the slides and you can hear him explain about the early battles of the Civil War and about the reasons for the war itself. Uh, at least uh, the the late breaking reasons that were the catalyst for everything leading up to the firing on Fort Sumter. So what this means with this podcast is I'm going to be mentioning a lot of the same things, but I'm going to be a little more generalized because what I don't cover, Alex should cover in his uh, narrated annotated PowerPoint. 
And if there's anything that I don't cover and he doesn't cover, it's in your book. So let's get started with the overview of maybe not all of the different factors leading into this, but some of the major players, both in people and in concepts. So causes of the war. One of the biggest arguments that plagued America from the very beginning was the debate over whether we needed a strong centralized government or a more decentralized government where power is more in the hands of the state rather than in the feds. And so there is also this ongoing debate about the constitutionality of secession. Again, Texas had it written into their constitution that they could revert to a republic, independent republic, whenever they wanted. Um, several of the other states, especially among the original 13, had it worked into their original constitutions that secession was one of their state's rights. But of course, that debate quickly became a front issue that just grew in momentum over time. So, so this is a big debate that is roaring in the background. Then there is the issue of slavery. Now, I, I know I'm going to be talking about some other factors, some other issues. Please understand, I am not minimizing the slavery issue. If you are coming to this lecture from the outside, you're probably wondering why there hasn't been a big spiel on slavery in these you know, early episodes. That is because when I teach American history, we do the slavery lesson back at the beginning of the school year. It has always seemed weird to me that slavery is not addressed as an individual topic until right before the American Civil War. That's how it was always explained to me. That's how it was explained when I was uh, a sign language interpreter slash teacher in the public school system. I've never sat in a classroom as a teacher or student where that is not how it was taught until I came to Lighthouse. And then I made the decision this year to deal with the slavery issue in the early, year, early years because I feel like that gives more context for what America did and did not do during the colonial era and in the early Republic era. So slavery, as my students can tell you, is a very complicated issue. Not all Northerners were abolitionists. Not all Southerners were pro-slavery or slave owners. So nearly all of the slavery, oh goodness, English Angela, work with it. Nearly all of the slave trading companies were located in the North. And many Northerners had a vision of an all-white future, whereas Southerners did not. It was almost universally agreed that slavery must end. The question was how? And of course, um, I should also point out the flip side that there were a lot of Southerners who were slaveholders. A lot of them only owned like between one to five slaves. So this is, you know, probably about half the slave owners in the South. But then those who had more than four or five slaves, they had a bunch. And it it is those those people, that picture that we have indelibly burned into our brains, this picture of the large cotton plantation with dozens or even hundreds of slaves working these plantations, 
that existed too. Not to minimize that at all, especially when we've got narratives of people like Frederick Douglass and his escape to freedom and the way he was treated as a slave and how um, the wife of his owner actually was forced to put a stop to her teaching him how to read. Her husband found out about it and was furious, made her stop. But Douglas, being the smart cookie that he was, he learned just enough during his time with her that between his exposure to newspapers and then his ability to basically trick the neighborhood kids, the neighborhood white kids, into teaching him bits and pieces of missing information, like he knew where the holes were. And then he found ways to get the kids to fill in some of the missing blanks in a way that made him look like, you know, the dumb slave when in reality, like he he had this internal checklist and these neighborhood kids were helping him take off the check mark, uh, all these, uh, this whole checklist. And, and of course he learns to read. He, he has this crazy, amazing story. If you haven't read his narrative, we read other slave narratives this year. If you haven't read his, go read it. It's a short read. It is riveting. It is very well written. He's one of the great orators of uh, the 19th century. In fact, I personally would put him up there with Clay, Calhoun, and Webster. The guy was amazing. Um, But we have narratives like his to show that, yes, there were some serious abuses among slaveholders. Keep in mind, too, that Douglas did not come from a Southern slave state. He was a slave in Maryland. You know, food for thought there. Um, But see, all of that right there, that's not, oh, the North was bad and the South was good. Yeah, I know I live in Georgia. That's not where I'm going with this. My point here is that slavery during the time was a complicated issue. You had people in the South who wanted all the slaves to be freed. You had people in the North who were like, nope, we're making too much money with this slave trade and with, you know, selling slaves and we, you know, it, it, it worked both ways. Okay. Again, no one people group, no one nationality, no one uh, ethnicity or race has a monopoly on sin. We are all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. And some of us, when we sin, we do it loud and proud with, you know, just big neon signs that say, hey, look at what I'm doing. I'm not going to apologize for it. Okay. So slavery, complicated issue. Um, now, it, mixed into this, you have culturally two visions of civilization. And I'm dropping back on the Giles Kirk curriculum here. This is courtesy of Dr. George Grant at this point. Um, we're talking about these ideologies, these worldviews that we actually talked about in the Fire Breathers episode, the South, more conservative, um, uh, largely Calvinistic, uh, the geography and climate lent itself to an agrarian way of life, uh, what uh, George Grant calls a neo-feudal way of life. Um, Nearly all Southern gentlemen attended military academy Life was generally genteel, more of a classical culture. Um, You can look at the antebellum architecture in the South and and see it reflected even in some of our older buildings. Okay, so that's the, you know, the happy bubble of the South. That's what 
you know, everything would have looked like there at the time and to a large extent still does in some ways. In the North, we have more of an urban progressivism. Masses of working middle-class Americans, factories, foundries all over the North, um, a lot of hustle and bustle. They, as a general rule, despise backward planter aristocrats, that in quotation marks, saw themselves as enlightened, practical, business-like, progressive, reform-minded. Again, sort of like what we have now. So we're in 2020, and the South is still largely rural. The North is still largely built up, large city centers, a lot of hustle and bustle. There's a lot of this that is still in effect even today, just with more of a postmodern slant. Now, we've got all of these different factors coming together. These two different visions of civilization, the slavery issue, the ongoing debate about a strong federal government versus strong state governments. And then we get to the election of 1860. And this is what really pushes tensions over the edge. It's already at fever pitch. And then Lincoln and Douglas come to their great debates. And this is when things start to snap. Now, Democrats couldn't agree on a candidate. So Douglas was not the only one being put forth as a presidential candidate on the Democratic side. You also had Breckinridge. You also had Bell. But that three-way split of the Democratic vote is what gave Lincoln the edge. So he gets elected in uh, 1860. And as promised, South Carolina follows through on its threats. And by unanimous vote, they secede from the Union. By February, Georgia and all of the Gulf Coast states had followed suit. And um, by February 7th, the southern states had formed the Confederate States of America. And Jefferson Davis elected as first president. Now, all of this was sparked into armed conflict by the firing on Fort Sumter. So in March, the Confederacy sends three peace commissioners to Washington to attempt some sort of resolution of the federal fort issue. Lincoln and Seward, Secretary of State, refused to meet with them, but Seward assured the men that Fort Sumter would be evacuated or sent written confirmation of this by April 7th. Lincoln never made it clear whether or not he was aware of that promise. So on April 9th, the commissioners learned that a fleet of ships was headed to Charleston to resupply the federal troops at Fort Sumter. The Confederate Army considered this an act of war. So when the heavily armed fleet neared Fort Sumter, April 12, 1861, Beauregard opened fire on the fort. After two days of bombardment, the officer in charge, Major Anderson, surrendered. The federal troops left in steamships. No lives were lost in the engagement. But this is the spark that blows up the powder keg.
The next day, Lincoln calls up 75,000 troops to suppress the secessionist, secessionist states. And this action prompted four more states to secede from the Union, Virginia, Tennessee, North Carolina, Arkansas. Okay, at this point, this is where in a typical history class, I would dive into at least a short list of the battles and why they matter. However, I'm going to hold off on that. I'm going to let Alex Drum explain that to you in the PowerPoint. And if need to, uh, if need be, rather, I can supplement with Miss Earl's PowerPoint from four years ago, which explains the same battles in the same order. We also have the textbook to supplement any explanation that is not covered thoroughly in either of those two PowerPoints. But what I do want to do here real quick is to do a quick comparison on the resources, the leaders, and the strategy of these two sides. So on the north, you have 18 states, 18.5 million people. In the south, you have 11 states and roughly about 9 million people, but more than 3 million, roughly 3.5 million of those were slaves. Okay. In the north, you have food crops, grains in the Midwest. In south, you have cash crops, cotton and tobacco. Okay, so when things start to really pinch in, the north might have to ration things, but they had food. The south, you can sell cotton and tobacco, but only if you can get your ships out of port. And the blockades pretty much put an end to that. Uh, the North had over 22,000 miles of railroad tracks. They could get supplies from point A to point B very quickly. The South, we only had about 9,500 miles of track. And they went through very specific areas, most notably Atlanta. And of course, we're all Georgia kids here. So we are all very familiar with the uh, burning of Atlanta and Sherman's March to the Sea. So we know, even without looking at our history books, that destroying what little bit of railroad connectivity we had was high on Sherman's list of things to do. On the northern end, again, there is over five times as many factories and over 10 times as many factory workers as there were in the south. So again, if you need war supplies, if you need more guns, if you need more uniforms, if you need more ammunition, the North could get it, the South, not so much. Then you have the military leaders. On the North side, we have uh, Ulysses S. Grant and William Sherman, among others. In the South, we have Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, and Jeb Stuart. So strong military tradition and, um, you know, these three guys leading um, many trained officers. In fact, some historians would argue that the officers in the South were much better trained. Um, and then the strategy. The northern states were on the offensive. Their plan was to invade the South using the Anaconda Plan, which I believe is detailed very well in your textbook. And then the South was on the defensive. Their strategy was to outlast the enemy, exhaust your way out of the situation, just like we saw at the end of the War of 1812. 
outlast the enemy, defend home, defend family. Those were the priorities. So although these sorts of things may seem unimportant, you know, general strategies, you know, where the factories were, these are the differences that end up being crucial in deciding the outcome of the war. Because in tenacity, the South had tenacity. In supplies, the South, uh, sorry, the North had the supplies. Now, there was tenacity on both sides, um, by all means. Uh, The soldiers on the Northern side of the conflict, they were not cowards. But if you go back into those worldviews, that that distinction between how the two sides thought and how they approached life and how they did life, there was a certain tenacity on the southern side of the equation that just had an extra layer of barbed wire worked through it. Whole books have been written about this. I'm not going to belabor that point. But this is the background of both sides, both in mentality, in the resources they had, who their leaders were, and their approach to the whole conflict. This is what takes us into the battles themselves. And this is where you're going to look at your homework assignment regarding Uh, the textbook and also Alex Drom's presentation to fill in the blanks about the nitty gritty details of the fight. P.S. For a brisk, fun, visual rich summary of the same time period and with a slightly different perspective on some of the more salient points, I would recommend going to YouTube Crash Course History Lecture number 18 with John Green, and enjoy. It's only about 15 minutes long. Have a great day. PPS, that would be Crash Course U.S. History number 18. There are actually several Crash Course History series out there on YouTube, including a European history course that started airing just this year. So if you just put in Crash Course number 18, you might not get the correct episode. So you're looking for the episode specifically entitled The Elections of 1860. Thanks.